Welcome back, everyone, to Asset Horizon on Zero Books and Repeater Media. And today with us, we have the privilege of having Colin Drum, who is an independent scholar and an organizer at the Member School. Colin organizes classes, reading groups, and so forth in an online Discord community. And one of the reasons that we wanted to have him on was to talk about some overlap overlapping opinions that we might share with Colin regarding para-academia and the university and what the university is like today under neoliberalism and some of the challenges and obstacles all of that entails. So Colin, welcome on the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'd like you to give your proper introduction. What is it that you do? How did you get involved with the Members School? And what is your basic take on academia today? Sure. Um, well, so I spent 10 years at the University of California. Um, I was in the English department at UC Riverside for a couple years, and then I went to the History of Consciousness program at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and so, yeah, so my, you know, my uh, intellectual work, my scholarly work is about monetary history, um, which I'm, we'll probably get to, I, I assume. Um, I've been trying my dissertation, which is going to become a book at some point. I'm writing a new chapter for it, so I, We'll see uh, how long that takes me, but um, it's an attempt to intervene into monetary debates that I'm sure your viewers are, are kind of aware of, uh, MMT-associated things. Where does money come from? Can the government run out of it? What does all this mean? Um, and there's there's been, you know, kind of on the left uh, over the last 10 years, there's been sort of a, a, a simmering debate between Marxists and MMT people about, about this question um, because raising the question of money, what is money, um, presents a kind of challenge to the value theory uh, that, that that Marxism is based on, and so and so this this has been a fairly contentious debate. My my intervention into it is to say that they're essentially both wrong, um, and that uh, we need to rethink. You know, uh, uh, the, there's a, there's an exciting opportunity to th to think about what money is and, and the history of it that is. Uh, not being pursued because the debate has been divided into these kind of two camps and, and everybody seems to be kind of committed to one or the other and, and, and thinking in the, in the middle between them is, is not something that many have a task that many have taken up. Um, so that's what my scholarly work is about. Uh, you know, I spent uh, 10 years at the university of California and particularly at Santa Cruz, which is um, one of the most unfortunate places to do your PhD in terms of finances of making it work. Uh, you know, um, studio apartments in Santa Cruz costs a lot more than the money that they give you that is supposed to support your whole life, not just your rent, right? So, so you know, more than 100% of my income was going to my rent. And there was various, you know, labor actions. There was a wildcat strike that people, um, I'm, I'm sure, are familiar with that I was kind of involved in a little bit. And, uh, you know, but, but I, through these experiences, have become somewhat pessimistic about the university, the prospects um, um, for asserting power in the university to make the university serve the needs of students and intellectuals, which uh, to my mind is, is, is what it should do, um, but I'm not sure it's going to. And so I've been looking for other, other alternatives. And what, what, I, what we're now calling member school really began is just a seminar that I started giving. Um, just I had developed a kind of following on Facebook of people, you know, I, you know, posting about my research and various thoughts about other things. And I had developed a following and I said, you know, well, why don't I give a class? And, and um, this turned, there was a lot of, uh, I mean, I made some money doing it. it. It turned into a nice little side gig that uh, 
I, you know, I didn't have to apply for grants and stuff to fund my way through university because I was doing Patreon instead. And so that's, I've been doing that for about three, maybe a little bit more than three or four years. And basically, you know, people showed up to my seminar and I said, well, you know, these people uh, have a lot to offer. So why don't, why don't I give some of them a turn at leading the class? Uh, Jade DeLille um, is, is the notable person here who she really showed up in my seminar and changed my thinking about a lot of things in particular. So if we get to the money stuff, money has something deep to do with problems about kinship, about human kinship in a way that is um, not thought about at all, basically, by the way that either Marxists or liberals or charterists or whatever think about it. It's a deep problem. And that's something that Jade really expanded my thinking on. And and so basically the member school grew out of my seminar where I, um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to play teacher in addition, sorry, play students in addition to playing teacher. And so, uh, yeah, so, so we've now been, uh, so last year was kind of the first full year of doing member school where I was doing it for full time because I finished my PhD and basically decided that I did not want to continue with academia. I had my fill of it. It wasn't giving me what I wanted and I was having much more fun hanging out with my friends at member school. And so we, yeah, so we offer about, um, we're going to offer, I think it's 13 classes this year. They're basically, they're eight week classes. They meet twice a month. They have anywhere from 100 to 200 pages of reading, depending on the level. And I'm basically trying to get people paid to uh, to teach. Um, and the classes are cheap for our students that are very affordable. We've cut out the middleman. It's a good gig. And the but the real, you know, the real thing is we record the classes and sell the archive to subscribers for $7 a month is our basic package. You get all the classes and we've got, we've been growing rapidly with that. And basically that income allows me to subsidize the classes, the, the subscribers subsidize the classes. So I can, so I, I lose money. I pay the people that I hire more than the total tuition that the students um, get and, and I make it back up on subscriptions. And so that model is growing rapidly. So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to create an intellectual space outside the university. We don't really need them that much. And uh, we can, and there actually is demand out there for people who want to learn. The university isn't serving their needs as students, and they're willing to pay for it. I mean, it's you know, it's a class with us doesn't cost that much more than I mean, it costs much less than going out to the bar for a night, right? In in, a, in Los Angeles or something like that. So it's it's affordable. So that's, that's great. That's the basic idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes us comrades in some sense, because as folks know, through Asset Horizon and through Zero Books, we run Patreon reading groups. But seriously, yeah. what we do pales in the sophistication um, and the organization that you have. W would you mind getting into some of the details? Because Noah had told me that you do something quite interesting with allowing uh, subscribers or students to pay into the system, but then they end up getting money back. Um, at, like what, what are some of the intricate economics of the way that you run the school? Uh, so I think, so I think what, what Noah is referring to is the rebate. We offer a rebate model basically. So, um, so, you know, so to get into the money stuff a little bit in my, my, some of my orientation towards money, I, when I first began thinking about economics in the aftermath of, I graduated from college in 2011 into the aftermath of, you know, the great financial crisis and all that sort of stuff. And, I, and so I started becoming interested in it and, and turned to Marxism uh, and, and studied Marxism pretty, uh, I was very intensely carried away with it for, for several years. Um, and, and in that tradition, one gets the idea that money, you know, kind of corrupts things that, 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 you know, the best thing would be to get rid of money to escape from the logic of the money form or whatever, in my thinking now, I'm I'm I 
I think that money is an interesting tool that you can play with. And it, 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 there's a lot more contingency. It depends about how you structure how money flows. It's, there isn't one logic of how money has to work. You can do different things with it. And one example of this is that, you know, sometimes I've taught classes for free. I don't like doing free stuff because people stop coming. When, when, when I say I'm going to teach this class for free, anybody, you know, people show up for the first session and then they don't come back to the second session. And it makes, it makes me feel bad, but if they pay, then they come back. I mean, in much higher rates. Right. So, so there, there's something important. And I, sometimes I have difficult, difficulty explaining this to people on the left who are very resistant to it for whom the ideal is escaping from anything that sounds like money, but but so, so basically the way that our classes work is that they, you know, students pay up front and then I offer a rebate for every class that they attend at the end. And this gives them, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get people, I'm trying to get people libidinally invested into the project of studying books and, and, and the stuff and what we do is difficult. I mean, it's not easy stuff all the time. Some of it's easier than others, but it's, that gives them buy-in, right? I paid for this. It's valuable to me. Not only that, but if I, you know, every class that I miss, it, it has a money value attached. That, that's that's 15 bucks that I could have gotten back from my, on my tuition, but I didn't do the reading come to class, and so I can't. Now, what's funny about this is that the, my rate of having people claim the rebates is incredibly is incredibly low. Almost nobody asks for them back. So 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 people people do sometimes claim the rebates, especially you know. Um, so it works as kind of a sliding scale. Um, but generally, what I find is that people like the idea up front. And then by the by the time they got to the end of the class, they said, "Well, that was worth the money I paid for it. Like, I, you know, I support this project. Like, I don't really need my money back." But it, but anybody who who you know somebody if that's actually an important amount of money to somebody, then they'll ask for for it back, and I'm happy I'm happy to do that. So so it lets me you know my students have often very different abilities to pay. You know, I mean, I have some older guys who are like lawyers and stuff for whom what I charge them is way too cheap. It should be more. And then I have people uh, who are you know early twenties partially employed students, grad students, and things like this. So like, like Noah. <laughs> Great. You know, it, this actually quite reminds me of uh, when I was in college, I was uh, the secretary of our judo club and our judo team. And I remember our coach saying to us, like, make sure you get the $40 from everybody because otherwise people are going to stop showing up to this. Yeah. And, you know, to, to me, I was politically unaware at that time and just, you know, didn't really have a, a good sense of, you know, the libidinal investment, like you're saying, that people actually put into something if they make a, a real economic investment. But here's the challenge. Um, you know, as somebody who studied Marxism and maybe ostensibly, you know, believed in the idea that at some point, if we're to to achieve communism or surpass capitalism, we need to abolish the value form. I mean, is this some is this an idea that you yourself have gotten beyond, or is there a way to use money within a context of a society that has somehow surpassed capitalism? It's a what 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 you set up is a framework that makes very little sense to me uh, mm. now. It used it. The, what, all of everything you just said would have made complete sense to me in my twenties. Now I barely even know what's being asked. I mean, so I mean, as a historian of, I mean, you know, my scholarly work is about the history of money. I work mainly on the the fourteenth to kind of early seventeenth centuries English uh, histories, like mainly my my main focus of my scholarship. Um, and what what you find is that modern economic thought. And it, it's derived from from Hegel in large part. Hegel sets the, the the foundational myth of much of this. Although he's he's also drawing on 
thinkers like Adam Smith who are assembling this. So it doesn't spring fully formed from, from the head of Hegel, but he's, he's maybe the central reference for how this myth works today. That's very much about how modernity founds itself by putting the medieval world into the past. So, so there's this positing of this rupture, right, of this epical rupture in, in which a number of things get asserted by contrast about the medieval past. Um, for example, in, in, what's called, in what's called the German historical school, which is a kind of a little bit of a subterranean influence on the MMT literature, uh, there's an idea you know, that the, that the medieval past was more moral or more ethical than our world, right? There were, we, there were, this was before we were alienated. So the story that's being told is about the alienation that occurs under this thing we call capitalism. In order to explain how that can happen in history, we then need to posit that there's this past when people weren't alienated. It's constructing this narrative involves saying a lot of things about the medieval past that turn out really to be sort of not true when you go read mm -hmm. the literature. And and so I I see more as much continuity as I see rupture in this foundation of 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 what we think of as the modern world. So so the the whole framework of saying, well, you know, we're in capitalism and we used to not be because um, it, it also matters for this story that the things that we associate with capitalism are really recent. Right. Mm -hmm. that, um, and then you, you then you get development of ideas like late capitalism and all these other kinds of things. But then but then you start studying monetary history and you, they have futures contracts in the Bronze Age. You know, so so what exact and, and money itself is this very old thing, depending on how you want to depending on what it's not even clear how old it is, because it depends on what you define, how mm -hmm. you're looking for when you decide it began. Um, but all of these things began to seem much more old to me. Um, as I learned more about these topics, um, leading to uh, one of my slogans that I like to tell my students is "same shit, different epoch." Right? I mean, there are there are there are there are problems that are that are theorized as being capitalism problems in the way that a lot of people think about them, which makes them tractable because they're then modern problems. They're, they've only happened very recently. Um, that, 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 in my view, turn out to be much more deeply ancient problems. Um, mm. and I think taking, taking that seriously helps us understand them better, but it also, it disrupts these, some certain kinds of like optimistic eschatological narratives we might have about overcoming them and surpassing them. So I'm, so I'm skeptical, I'm skeptical about the whole framework that you're setting up. Yeah. I, I admit that my question was a bit of a setup. This makes me want to ask you about, uh, Deleuze and Gattari and the nomadology plateau and the apparatus of capture, but I'm going to put that on pause for a second and maybe pass it to Adam. Well, yeah, I'm I, I'm not going to crack open the Deleuze and Guattari aspect, but I do think it's really important to definitely sort of unpack some of these very German kinds of historiography. That I mean, even this is stuff we even see being refuted by uh, uh, Jean-François Lyotard in the Bidnall Economy, where it's like it wasn't like we'd fallen from grace. And I think uh, I think he actually picks stuff in Baudrillard, where this ends up being having exactly sort of quite racist connotations of uh, essentializing. Um, so you know, free modern uh, peoples from a standard modernists themselves pick up, and this is this is just gripping throughout Hegel. But rather than indulge my my love of putting the knife into my old master, I do actually want to take it back to the university a little bit and just talk about because I mean, so I, I gave uh, some uh, something of like a collaborative talk at the uh, University of Essex's uh, commu like basically communization center cover. And I did, Colin, I did actually mention uh, your model as a model of like one way to actually take the university outside the university. And I think it's good to think about this idea of changing the libidinal economy of learning. 
because fundamentally the libidinal economy of learning, at least in the UK, uh, where I am, is, is based on a, a social mobility myth that the university is a place that distributes grades and grades are functionally a, a kind of currency insofar as they are like passcodes or like pass, not even currency, only more like keys to get into certain aspects of the job markets. And that social mobility ideology is actually what ends up fucking a lot of us over because to, guess what? If you don't go to Oxford and Cambridge, a lot of these aren't really as, as keen on having you in. As soon as, as soon as, you know, grade inflation kicks in, the, the old doors of the aristocracy, because in Britain we never liquidated our aristocracy, we still need to get to that, but yeah. those doors really close in. And I was thinking about this particularly in line of some of the critiques of the university we've gotten in the last uh, 10 years or so from people like Stefano Hani and Fred Moten, where they say the university is a place of fugitivity, it's a place you can take refuge, you can, as they say, the only proper relationship to the university now is a criminal one. But it, it seems really as the forces of reaction, they're on the move, and the university is getting so much more expensive and the means of living around the university get more expensive, that this fugitivity is is drying up. So I mean, so I guess Colin wanted to ask it, what do you think about this idea that is the university still a place of refuge? I mean, obviously it's gonna be different from place to place, but in your experience, has it been that? And does this mean we need to change or need to change the reason why we want to read these books in the first place rather than for the, the promises of a failed social mobility. Yeah, um, thanks for the question. I, I'm very sick of hearing about Moten and Harney, and I'd be happy if I never had to hear about that again. Um, I, I think it's something that made sense for a previous generation, and that doesn't really doesn't make sense in the same way for us because. I mean, you know, for me, the university is not a refuge. If if I were going to go to the university, I would have to, I would have to pay rent in, in the place where the university is, which is the opposite of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I ran away from the university so that I could so I could get a house where I can afford to live and I could get off the rent treadmill. And so, the university is only a refuge if there's funds available for you there. I mean, it all comes down to funding, mm -hmm. and well. This is a topic that I tried to raise to Fred Moten in, uh, at, at one point. I, uh, I've studied with him briefly, and uh, the, yeah. there's not willing to talk talk in what in what to me is a serious and, and business like manner about funding and money, right? I mean, there's 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 a certain desire to tiptoe around these questions um, among people mm. who want to who want to perform a certain radical subjectivity inside of academia in a, in a way that I've now come to see as kind of self self self-aggrandizing more than it is radical. Um, you know, I have nothing against stealing from the university if, if, if you're in a position to do so, but the question is what about those of us who aren't in a position to do so? Um, what, what do we do? And, and there's, I mean, there's the, there's the further, there's the further problem that as much, you know, I, it would have been nice to get paid as a grad student enough to put a roof over my head and not have to find mm -hmm. other external sources of funding. But the funding was not my only beef about the university and, and what was happening mm -hmm. there. I mean, my, the bigger beef was that it's boring. I mean, there's people, people talk endlessly and they don't say very much and it's, it's boring and they pretend to read things that they don't. And everybody's afraid to disagree with one another because there's, well, because the university is about a status. It works on a status hierarchy and, and everybody is intensely aware of the status hierarchy at all times. And it's a little, it sits, a, it sits a little, 
um, intention with the belief that what we are doing at the university is enabling social mobility for our students. Um, <laughs> it's, it seems to me rather that the, the university is an institution that is about inequality, that is about reproducing inequality. That is its purpose. And if we had, if we had in, institutions of intellectual life that weren't unequal, I think many of the academics wouldn't know what to do. They'd have to, they'd have to say something interesting that somebody wants to sit there and listen to, which is not something that they are necessarily very good at or interested in. So, so, so for me, it's not just, it's not just if the university would just pay me enough, I would want to be there. I mean, I, I have other reasons for wanting mm-hmm. to be outside, outside the university and at member school, you know, we, we cultivate, I think what is a refreshingly different attitude towards the study of text than, than, and, mm-hmm. and the business of thinking than one might find at the university. And so it's, it's kind of my bet that, you know, not only can we fund the thing with that university, but, but, but what, what we're, what we're going to do is better. I mean, it's, it's where we're going to have more fun and be more interesting. And, 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 and so I, there's, it's, it's not just a salvage or an escape or a fugitive, you know, of, of being fugitive. It's, I think we can do better. I think, I think we deserve better from our intellectuals and from our academic life. Great. Noah, do you want to hop in? Yeah, um, I've been I've been pushing for us to to get together because I think there's a lot of overlap with sort of the Acid Horizon following and what the members project is about. I mean, we read Bataille and Deleuze and Guattari in two different reading groups right now, and we uncover a lot of problems about kinship and a lot of discussions about money. Um, an exchange and debt. And um, I, you know, I've been trying to bring some of the members' view on money and kinship and assets and that connection to reading Bataille. It becomes really useful uh, to see the anthropological milieu he's discussing and he's having these conversations with and, and, uh, and his, his encounters with the economics. And maybe I, I wanted maybe to give you a chance to like give your, your connecting puzzle of of like the French theorists that we are so into, and and the view on money that that you have because we've read Anti Oedipus together, we've read a bit of Bataille together, and and you know you were you mentioned that you were more indebted to them than you might have remembered when you first or that since you've read it right and um yeah just your your take on that and maybe how uh, you know how, why why Acid Horizon should care about money. Um, if we care about these other philosophers. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Tall. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, Deleuze and Guattari are uh, very influential on my, th- on my thought. We did anti-Oedipus a seminar on that last year. I had a lot of fun reading it. I haven't read a thousand plateaus in 10 years. I mean, so um, the, the, the stuff they say about money in the, in the, in the apparatus of capture chapter and some of the, some of the later sections is, is very interesting because they're working with, um, they're working with the right kind of theory. Um, uh, so maybe, maybe, maybe I'll say something about what the right kind of theory is, and then, and then y'all can fill in the. I'm, I'm I can't. I'm not going to quote you, Deleuze and Guattari, from memory. I'm not going to try, right? But there's, but, but they, but what they have in that chapter is um, a theory of money that doesn't try to reduce one of the axes of monetary phenomena to the other. And, and what I mean by that is that there's basically what you will, we call a vertical axis and a horizontal axis in monetary systems. The debate about money in the mainstream is 
set up between chartalists and metalists. So this is this is intro stuff. I p- figure people know this, right? But but basically the the difference between these camps is is can be characterized by what they say about coins. Coins, of course, are is the paradigmatic example of what you would think of when you think of money. Um, even when we think about money today, most people have a sense that it's paper when it should be something else. It should be a coin and it isn't anymore. And that matters for some reason, right? People have this kind of sense. So, you know, so we think about coins and we think about money. And the coin is a weird thing because on the one hand, it's got precious metal in it. And on the other hand, it's got a sign on it. It's got a stamp as a, a, you know, has a, it's entered into a signifying system. It it is a linguistically constructed uh, artifact um, that has something to do with, with state power. And the, the, the different camps of monetary theory generally try to reduce one to the other. They either try to say what really matters is the middle. And this, for example, this is what Aristotle says. Uh, you know, the state just kind of guarantees how much metal there is in the coin. And that's and, and then we kind of know that the state could debase the money, but like that's bad because that's tyranny, right? That's basically the sort of conceptual framework. And then you have the other camp. This is um, a view that has a, a, a long history, but has come more into into the fore in the 20th century because of the development of the modern monetary regime, central banks, uh, state-issued banknotes. And and this is the, a theory that says basically, well, it's the stamp is the only thing that matters. And in fact, the metal is irrelevant. It's, it's you know, so Keynes calls it a barbarous relic. Um, you get various writers like Christine Dasan who try to explain away the metal. Um, they, you know, they try to, well, it's, they could have made it out of anything, but they chose metal for kind of like some you know, it prevents counterfeiting is one ex- argument they make, which makes no sense. Uh, uh, actually, it's, 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 there's no clear reason that, that it, it would do that. But the, you know, but they're always trying to reduce one to the other. And what Deleuze and Guattari have, um, and I think they're influenced by certain writers in what was called like the French circuitist school. The French, the French thinkers are a little ahead of the Anglophone thinkers and thinking about money, partly from the influence of Fernand Brodel, who's also a big influence on Deleuze and Guattari in the way that they're thinking about history. Um, and, and they're trying to think about money without trying to reduce one to the other, to say, look, I mean, yes, there is a vertical system of monetary phenomena. And when we think about monetized societies in terms of societies where you'd walk around with your money in, in your pocket and you buy a hot dog or whatever, right? I mean, where, where everyday interactions are, are mediated by money, generally this is a situation that is, seems to be produced by state building, state formation processes, and particularly involving naval power. So states get navies and they monetize their societies kind of as a, as a result of this. So there's like this crucially important aspect of, in, in particular, for reasons that are interesting to think about naval power, naval power projection and, and as stimulating a monetary economy. But it's not the case, as the chartalists want to say, that that's the only thing that matters, that, that um, you know, they have this theory where the, you know, there's just this unquestioned sovereign who's the arbitrary boss of everybody. And he, you know, spends money into existence and taxes it back out of existence for reasons that are a little unclear why he would even want to, do, like, what exactly problem does that solve? It's a little unclear. Um, but but so, so my work follows from this kind of idea that Deleuze and Guattari have where they're emphasizing the circuits of the towns. I mean, this is the horizontal axis. They're talking about these horror and they're getting this from Rodell. And then they're trying, then they have a theory of the state 
framed in terms of overcoding, you know? So there are these flows that are happening and the state is taking these flows as its raw materials and inserting its own uh, significance production, right? Into these flows and trying to overcode them and harness them to its own purposes. But that this, it's it's not, it's this continually incomplete, process right there's this there's this constitutive and fundamental tension between the two different aspects of the phenomena um and this this is this is a view that is totally consonant with what i would take to be the the correct view about about money now the question is how, what does this have to do with kinship and all of this kind of stuff which i can go on but maybe i'll pause for a moment oh actually i i would like you to say a little bit more about that and and i'll just say that you know, one of the ways that I'm thinking about Deleuze and Guattari's work uh, here that that might help us is to, and and you're talking about how Deleuze, I'm thinking of his essay, Two Regimes of Madness, where he talks about different regimes of money. I mean, in, in very simple terms, you know, the change that I have in my pocket to buy the hot dog versus financial capital. And I guess my question would be, um, how do we think about kinship in terms of this other axis or this other regime of of capital, which is financial capital that at the macro level, you know, can impact, you know, the kinds of experiments that, you know, both you and, and I and all of us here are trying to undertake to build, you know, a new framework, a new paradigm for education when the vagaries of financial capital are so volatile that it could, you know, and in, in, in a fell swoop, you know, kind of reduce us to, um, you know, a, you know, a situation where we, we can't carry on with these experiments anymore. And I, I wonder if you have a sort of political view that backs that up. Like, how do we approach the, the issue of financial capital as it relates to our, our individual and collective freedom? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I think the, the issue here, and this is what my work is most centrally concerned with, is that there, there is in the seven, really kind of in the middle of and in the aftermath of the English 17th century, which was, of course, a very eventful year for the English. I mean, a very eventful century for the English. They, they chopped off the head of their king. They experimented with parliamentary rule. They eventually, uh, the, 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 the London commercial classes that supported the Commonwealth eventually kind of turned on it and they invited the king back. There's the restoration. And then they, you know, they, then, then, you know, uh, there's the glorious revolution. And, and then, and then the, and in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, we have the founding of, this, of the Bank of England, um, which is the foundation of the modern monetary regime. So my critique of the Chartalists is to say that that they're anachronistically projecting um, a, a actually much more modern development onto the past and saying this is how it's always worked. I'm saying, well, it's it's not how it always worked. And in fact... You know, people in the past knew that you could have modern money, uh, but they thought it would be a terrible idea. I mean, they 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 didn't want that to happen. De- developing a, con- a political constitution that made it possible was a process that occurred through an immense amount of bloodshed in the, in the English 17th century. And and the American Civil War is in some ways a continuation of these kind of struggles, right? The, the dollar system was really born out of the American Civil War. And and so I what I try to do is call attention to the, to the ways that um, monetary systems 
require certain kinds of constitutions. Money, money poses a threat to constitutional order, and it also depends upon the maintenance of constitutional order. And we need to understand that. So, so this leads up to your question, because what happened in, in the development of the modern state constitution was the development of a, of a new kind of relationship between finance and the state, um, where essentially, you know, what happens is that the, you know, the, the, the kind of Anglo-Dutch commercial elite um, develop an alliance with the English state apparatus in, in such a way that allows the state's debt to become a safe asset. And this is really important. It can't be taken for granted. So this is central to not only MMT, but to what's to modern financial portfolio theory. So basically financial uh, modern portfolio theory assumes that there's this risk-free rate of return and that there's this asset, which is like the U S debt. That's kind of pretty close to being the risk-free rate of return. But the idea that debt owed to you by a sovereign would be risk-free is actually extremely counterintuitive because he's the sovereign. So if he decides not to pay you, what are you going to do about it? I mean, um, uh, so so traditionally, sovereign debt is a risk asset and not a safety asset. For example, you can if you read about Philip II, the the um, the king of Spain, uh, um, who you know famously made this alliance with the Genoese merchant bankers and this kind of stuff. I mean, his debt was a risk asset. They they made money lending to him despite the fact that he defaulted on it a number of times um, until eventually they got wiped out. But for a good period of time. The, the investors were making a lot of money because it was a risk asset. Now, what the English develop, and this is eventually how they defeat Napoleon, um, is by making public debt safe. Now, what that allows to happen is for public debt to be at the center of the creation of near money in the private sector, right? So, um, so there, you know, so there's an important uh, concept, uh, the idea of liquidity um, that I develop in some detail in my in the first chapter of my dissertation. The the short version of it, right, is that you can't just expect that a market is going to exist and is going to let you transact however you want to at any time, right? So so you couldn't necessarily just walk into a market and sell something and then go, oops, I didn't want to sell it. And then buy it back immediately at the same price. You're, you're going to, you're going to have to buy it back for higher than you sold it for the, the mar- in the market, there exists a spread for, for any kind of asset that's being priced. And, and the less liquid the asset is, the bigger the spread is going to be. So very liquid assets have very tight spreads. So that's what makes money different than everything else is it's very liquid. So you can, you can transact in it without losing a lot of, value, I, I, I suppose, uh, uh, by, by doing it, right? So um, when you price assets, you, you can, you, you're essentially, you're pricing how liquid they are relative to money. And having a, a large market in public liabilities and public debt allows everything else, all other kinds of assets to be priced with reference to that kind of asset, right? So, so we can we can tell how how close to money they are, and we can price the difference between that asset and money. What this effectively does, this is what repo markets do, for example. What this does is allow other things that aren't money to be turned into money, to turn to be turned into synthetic money. Because what you do is you hedge you hedge the difference between that asset and money, and now what's left over is money, right? So, this is a constitution constitutional order 
in which capital asset markets, right, the, 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 the capitalized value of non-money assets is stabilized and guaranteed by the operation of state power um, that has taken on a kind of constitutional responsibility to ensure the liquidity of non-monetary assets. And, and this is important to understand because most of the money in the economy is not produced by the state. Um, rather, it's near money. It's, it's, it's money that is just a little bit less liquid than the official state money. And, and this is what, where most of the money comes from. And so there's, there is a public-private partnership that has been developed over the constitutional history of the last, say, 300 years of the Anglo-American world-dominated world order uh, in, in terms of in, in which the so- sovereign power makes itself safe um, by, by, by becoming less risky for capital asset markets. That is a problem that we need to rethink if we're gonna if we're going to rethink um, well the relationship between the state and distributional justice because there's important ways that becoming safe for capital asset markets requires states to take distributional justice off the table right so so this is the question that NNT raises which is okay. I mean, we all sat there in 2008 and we go, well, the state can just print money out of nothing in order to save the banks. Like, why can't it print money out of nothing in order to, like, do stuff for us, you know, like buy us housing or or fight climate change or whatever? Um, well, whereas the people that I'm critiquing tend to see this as a sort of con- a contingent accident, we, we, we could just fix this. I'm saying it's not an accident. It's, it's, a, it's a feature of constitutional order. And if... Anglo-American elites had thought that that were going to happen, they would never have permitted the the monetary system that we have to be developed in the first place. And the legacy of this is a, really a kind of an unspoken and perhaps unspeakable understanding among the elites that money is non-scarce in a state of emergency when capital is threatened and scarce at all other times when there's just the normal amount of misery and inequality in our societies. And that this distinction... This distinction can't just be wished away by progressive legal scholars who want to recover the history of money in order to say, well, we could have nice, you know, we could all have nice things because money is ontologically non-scarce. I mean, sure, but, you you know, you might have to fight another civil war if you want to create a constitution that's going to make that happen. Um, So so I just I, I my work is concerned to understand that history and understand how it's not an accident that that there are these kind of seeming paradoxes in, in the way because because you know, the, the, the people the people who constructed these systems were well aware uh, of the of the problem, which is that if you remove money from its from this foreign exchange discipline from the gold standard or whatever, well, why don't why doesn't the bank just help everybody? This is what Walter Badgett sa- says in his book, um, a description of Lombard Street, which I recommend everybody to read. Um, who's who's a central thinker in the development of constitutional thought around the central bank regime. Um, and, and the main question he's concerned with is that um, he, he wants to say, look, the central bank's got to help the asset markets. It's got to be the lender of last resort. But we need to create a firewall so that this non-scarcity of money that exists in this sovereign institution doesn't, well, doesn't eliminate inequality in society. Because if the bank eliminates inequality, 
elites have no buy-in to, to, to reproducing the social order. That's what they want from the social order is to remain being elites. And so part of what I try to show in my work is that this problem has a, is a deep history and, it, and it, in some ways has always been the problem about coinage systems, um, uh, the, the, the politics of coinage and, and debasement and, and these kinds of things have, have always um, circled around this issue. And so, and so this, right, this gets to the problem of kinship because the point is, you know, the state, we, modern Europeans developed a fiction according to which the state serves the people and the people are sovereign and the people are kind of this undifferentiated mass of, of equal abstract citizens. But of course, I mean, this is not really what, how it works. I mean, really how it works is that the state is a vehicle for the reproduction of elite families. I mean, elite families with generational wealth and the state has, the state is committed to defending the reproduction of generational wealth. And for this reason, it, it takes the, the question of distributional justice off the table in the way that it constructs the monetary system. And so, and so, you know, my, my, my opponents, I say, think I, I, I would call them say that they sort of suggest that if we just avoid talking about these things, then progressive policymakers can get in power and then they'll fix it. My view is that we had, we need to talk about these things and, and that they, they, you know, there's deep issues about the legitimacy narratives of the state and the way that those legitimacy narratives require constructing metaphysical frameworks according to which certain things appear to be impossible. And, and the value theory is actually one of these, meta, one such metaphysical framework, which is that uh, essentially value is sort of some metaphysical force that constrains the distributional power of the state to sort of just tax and spend and, and, and reconfigure society however it wants. Um, which is, this is what I'm working on right now is kind of the genealogy of the value theory from William Petty through David Ricardo before Marx. Anyway, I've said a lot, so. No, that's great. Um, I, I do have a question, but I'll, I'll give it up to Adam if you want to go first. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great time to be doing this episode given we have the sovereign of the, of, of the UK, uh, well, just about to have his, he's already had his face stamped on the fucking coins, to be honest, mm. but just thinking about specifically the city of London. I mean, Craig, yeah. when you came over to the, the UK and I described to you what the city of London is, yeah. he, mm -hmm. when you describe the city of London is to anyone who's not from London, they do tend to think you do, you are a bit insane. So yeah, there's, um, there's, uh, a state, a, a somewhat a pseudo democratic state institution which precedes England itself, which has more or less been left alone since William the Conqueror in 1066, uh, is responsible for a lot of the, uh, Cat the the colonization of islands and has a specific deal with the government that there's, for example, in Parliament there's a guy called the Remembrancer um, who has to remind Parliament of his debts to the city. Freedom of information requests don't work on the city. Um, nine times out of ten, different police force. The king can't technically go in there without permission. <laughs> has a separate yeah. mayor and uh, all of the uh, democratic functionaries are predominantly voted on by the people, the companies that work there. And it is actually it's this, this sovereign paradox of why is the sovereign's debt something which they can actually gamble on? And thinking about the reproduction of aristocracy, and I think it's particularly interesting, maybe it's not, I don't know if it, how universalized what it is from England, because you know, not to go full Nan Anderson, but we, we, we didn't really have like this, you know, big land reforms. We didn't dissolve the gentry. We didn't you know, have these these French rollings of heads which would destroy the European aristocracy or even the kinds of 
great redistributions that would happen in you know throughout the Thirty Years' War across the con- continental Europe. But I guess the question specifically about the the idea of the political aspect of this is that in under such conception, then Colin does is is the theory of capital in terms of a value form Marxism. Of course, it's one sort of form of Marxism, but it seems actually to be returning to one of the definitions of capital Marx gives, which really isn't picked up very much in sort of discussions, which is command over unpaid labor. So in this sense, does this, this definition of capital really become more about purchasing power than reproducing an abstract equivalence? Yeah. So I'll give you a preview of what I'm, what I'm working on. There's going to be a couple of long posts. So, I mean, I, I got sent down this rabbit hole because I was beefing with William Claire, Claire Roberts on Twitter about um, what what capital by Karl Marx says and doesn't say. Um, mm. And I, so I'm I'm reviewing his book, but in the middle of reviewing it, I started the value theory stuff. I just I was like, okay, I got to figure out what where this comes from once and for all, and all this kind of stuff. So I, so I've gone back to William Petty, who's who's a thinker maybe many people don't know as much about, but um, the the I. The story is that he is the originator of this labor theory of value. As it turns out, he's not. I actually think he's being totally misread and that Petty has what most people think is a later theory, which is which is um, return on capital, um, basically the equalization of the rate of profit, which plays an important role in Marxist system. Um, this is actually the argument that Petty is making, uh, not a labor theory of value. I, I believe... So there's... Make a long story short, there are two very different ideas of the labor value concept um, that are intention in Smith, and what I'm going to be suggesting in the new chapter of what's of my book is that Marx takes these two. He 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 sees this contradiction, and because he's a good he's an earnest German schoolboy, he says, "Aha! These two different labor theory." concepts are the first two terms of a Hegelian dialectic. And I'm going to take these things and I'm going to turn on the Hegel machine and I'm going to, I'm going to do capital with it. Right. So, so the, so the two, the two concepts are what the literature on Adam Smith calls the labor commanded theory of value and the labor embodied theory of value. And they're different. Okay. So basically, you know, starting with William Petty and William Petty. So I'm going to resist talking for like, at great length about William Petty, who's kind of my obsession at the moment, but, but they, after the restoration, after, after the city of London basically gives up on the Commonwealth, they invite Charles II back. And now they got to fix the taxation because taxes was what they were fighting over. And the old, the old medieval tax tax was the subsidy. Um, it's a, it's basically, it's tax on movable goods. So they just come and say, okay, you got some wine, you got some grain, you got some whatever, we'll take one-tenth of it or one-fifteenth of it, depending on whether you're on the, in the city or the country or whatever. So the problem is that at, basically this system was, was falling apart already in the 16th century during the Tudor period. It basically was obsolete and they can't revive it. And what, so they, they are left with the Commonwealth fiscal system, which is based on assessments. So it's called the monthly assessment. And basically what it is, is they just rate each county. So each county just has a certain, um, they're like, well, this county's worth this much, this county's worth this much. And they push the responsibility for auditing everybody onto the counties. This raises the question about how to theorize capitalized value. So there's a difference between saying, 
I'm going to take X percentage of your produce of the land every year versus saying, I'm going to tax you based on the value of the land. There's a difference between the value of what the land produces in a given year and the value of the land itself. The difference between those is what we call the capitalization rate. How many, how many years worth of produce does it cost to buy the land in the first place? That's what you do when you buy an asset. So Petty is trying to develop a theory of capitalization. Um, and and by, I mean by capitalization, just that and nothing more, right? How do you, how do you price a revenue generating asset um, in terms of its price on the market now? How much is it worth now? Um, and, it, and for that, you need a theory of like time horizons and discounting and other kinds of things like this. Petty is doing this because he basically thinks that the problem is disproportionate taxation. When you tax people disproportionately, they get mad and then you have a civil war. But if you can figure out exactly what everybody's property is worth and tax them all perfectly proportionately, then they won't care. They'll be totally happy to pay the taxes because it because it doesn't matter because it Basically, they could be taxed infinitely. This is basically what he says. Um, if only you could find the proportional assessment of their wealth. And so, and so this he's and so this raises the question, which in many ways is the foundational question of political economy, which is what's the par? What's the par value between land and labor? By which they meant not what we think of as labor, but returns on capital. They meant. So when, when the 17th century writers say, when a man digs silver out of the ground, they don't mean the man himself. They mean his workers, right? So, so the re- returns to labor really means the returns to entrepreneurial capital. That's what they're talking about, even though they call it labor. Um, so like, if you don't, just look at the famous passage of John Locke, where, where he's proposing this labor theory. He says, the, the turf my horse has, and then he says, the, the, the tin my servant has digged, right? So, so the, this labor theory from its very origin was really actually about capital. Anyway, so so they're so they're trying to okay, so so we need this par. How do we value land and labor against one another as capitalized assets? In in the French tradition, uh, Richard Cantillon, he's the one who develops, I think, this labor-embodied theory of value, which is, but he's really developing it as a land-embodied theory of value, not a labor-embodied theory of value. This is what people think of when you think of physiocrats, right? The idea that ultimately the land produces value, and then there's kind of this substance that's produced in the land, and then it's transmogrified into other things. This is the idea of a conservation law, of a a value substance that is being preserved across its transformation from one sector into another. Petty doesn't have that idea. Cantillon has that idea. And they're a little bit different, right? One of them asks, suppose we have this revenue thing, you know, or suppose we have this commodity, how much value, do, how much labor is, are the direct and indirect inputs of producing it? That's this labor embodied theory. But then we say, okay, so now I sell that thing and how much labor can I command by selling it? Um, that's a different, that's the labor commanded theory. Like Smith uses one in one place and one in the other place, depending on what, how it suits his purposes at the moment. But what I'm, what I'm suggesting, and I'm going to be suggesting this at length in, in forthcoming work, is that Marx says, look, I mean, this is, this is one is value in itself and the other one is value for another. And there's a contradiction between them. And, and, and given that, I can boot up the Hegelian dialectic and I can say, well, what happens you know, if if value in and for itself produces a contradiction, then then we've got this motor that we can use in order to in order to try to do stuff like the way that I learned from Hegel. So now, so I mean, but so my take on this ultimately 
is that the value concept, which now is this shibboleth of Marxists. I mean, it's this thing that you have to say you believe in, even though nobody knows what exactly it means. They, they have all these, you know, theological arguments over it. Um, really, I mean, this, this is a concept that's developed by English elites in the 17th and 18th century, mainly about, about the tax base. It's a theory of the tax base. So, I mean, really what they're asking is, how do we have a theory about how much there is to tax? Um, or later in Ricardo, Ricardo is saying, well, we have this English public debt. What backs the debt? I mean, I mean, it seems like it's this unbacked floating debt. What backs it? Well, value backs it, right? So the so the the you know the the debt is safe because it's got value backing it or something like this. But so I think that we're actually as socialists, communists, leftists, whatever, we're actually better off just abandoning this concept entirely. Uh, it, it provides a legitimacy narrative that people are very attached to, right? The labor produces all value, et cetera, and so forth. But the problem is that it obscures the operation of money and financial power because that is kind of one of the things that it was created to do. And so when we, when we mistake that framework for a theory of the world, we miss important things about how power work, financial power works. And, 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 you know, my views are better off basically just not even talking about value. I mean, there, there really is no such thing. There are, there are, there are prices. Prices are, are made in the market. We should, we should understand how prices work rather than claiming to have a theory that lets us see beyond prices to what really matters, even though we've given up on the project of having a quantitative theory about it, which is really what value form stuff is. It says, well, it's just about the form. It's not about actually having a theory that, that, uh, that, that quantifies all of this stuff or makes predictions or any kinds of things like this. So um, I, I think it's a trap. I think the value theory is a trap in, in that, in that what we need instead is to, I mean, the, the concept that for me is the master concept that replaces value, of course, is options. I mean, there isn't value because there's options. And and we'd be better off understanding the logic of options, which which is which relates to sovereignty, right? So so even in, in Bataille, so I was I was I'll, I'll try to I'll, I'll bring it into Bataille. I mean, Bataille is interested in the op- sovereignty is the option to waste, right? The option to to waste unproductively for no reason as a condition of possibility of the economy in general, right? So th- this this is important because I think it tells us something really interesting about the somewhat contradictory role of the state in, well, wasting money so that others can have it to use it for. And, and, and in a way, I mean, much of what I'm talking about when I talk about the development of the modern constitutional order is the attempt to tame the sovereignty of the sovereign. Um, in order, you know, the sovereign needs to be there, but we're going to keep him locked up in the tower and trot him out when we need him, and all this other kinds of stuff. And potentially, I mean, what we would want to reclaim in order to intervene into this order is uh, a valorization of sovereign waste. I mean, we actually, we do want the sovereign to do a bit of wasting. And, and the question is exactly how to think about that. So, Oh, I, hope, I hope that kind of uh, makes sense. It's unrelated note. The coronation is expected to cost uh, one hundred million pounds. Ah, uh, this this is the colonization. Oh, the coronation. The coronation. Yes, yeah. colonization yes. will cost cost far much far much more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So 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 all of these all of these thinkers. I mean, when they're. 
they believe both at once that the crown is spending too much money, but that it needs to spend a lot of money. They're, they're always saying it's not, we're not saying that the king shouldn't like live in style, you know, and, and they always say, well, you know, because when the king, you know, uh, has all this fancy shit, well, like basically, you know, it creates jobs. He's the job creator and all of this. And, and they're, they're trying to emphasize that the money that leaves the king's uh, uh, coffers goes into the rest of the economy, and it and it, they're, so they're trying to think about this circuit, you know, and the and the king is occupying a particular place in the circuit where he needs to spend a lot of money, otherwise it stops working, right? I mean, if the king hoards all the money, then there's no money, uh, and so you need him to spend. But 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 how do you both get him spending? But restrain him from, you know, for example, abolishing all the debts uh, or, or stiffing all of his creditors and all this kind. I mean, it's, it's a tricky situation. Go ahead. Mm. I was I was going to, you know, as we're getting to the to the hour mark, um, wanted to kind of shed some light on what members, what specific courses we've been doing, what we're going to do this summer and in the fall. I mean, when we your, your goal was to start f- answering questions or asking questions about money, but we we suddenly started discussing theology and anthropology in these courses and uh-huh. political, th- political theology, French theorists, um, historians of all kinds. Um, is it all about the money? Are there uh, like, what is the, what, what is the connecting thread for members, is, uh, et cetera. Yeah, it is. It is all about the money. Although I try, I try to, to let it be about something different, but it, it keeps, it keeps coming. The money keeps coming back. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so. I mean, much of what I've talked about today, I haven't used that word, but there are uh, the- what are called theodicy structures. So I assume y'all know what this means. I mean, it's the justification of evil. So, I mean, you need a if God made the world and God is all powerful and all good, why is there evil, et cetera, and so forth. This this is the basic structure of legitimacy narratives. I would go so far as to suggest that economics itself is a theodicy and nothing else. I mean, economics is a theodicy and it needs to be understood as that. Otherwise you don't understand what it is you're looking at. Um, so, so yeah, so, so we, you know, in our courses, we explore a, a variety of things that it, in many ways um, touch on money. Uh, but we, I, you know, my, I try to let the metonymy take us where, it, where it goes and not try to impose my conceptual metaphors on everything ahead of time. Um, so, you know, really, the, the, the curriculum is, is partly determined by people who show up into our seminars. And, I mean, the best way to get hired at member school is take a class at member school and be and do the reading and be interesting and be a good participant. And and so, you know, when people show up and they know about stuff, they have passions about stuff. I try to I give them a class. So, so we're doing we're doing a class this summer on the history of horses from, you know, from the domestication of horses. Uh, their use in military structures, all these kinds of, I mean, this, so it's, it's a bit, it's a class on nomadism, you know, I suppose. Um, um, really, I mean, for, for basically no other reason than, than Joy has been in the seminar and she's super pumped about horses. And I love learning from people who are very excited to teach us about what they know. So, um, so yeah, so, so this, this summer, uh, it's a little, probably a little, my classes are pretty full anyway, but we, we got, uh, there's a, a course on black studies. So, a lot of a lot of what we've been talking about does lead into questions about race. Um, there's the German idealism angle, and and you know the other you know. So when I say the constitutional order is about protecting intergenerational wealth and intergenerational inequality, obviously, in, at least in the United States, and I, I think in much of the world, we're talking about race when we talk about that. So so this is something that we're trying to understand better. And and I'm teaching. I'm giving a course on Hobbes's Leviathan uh, this summer. And in the fall, we have uh, a course on um, 
the French Revolution and the Revolution of 1848. So kind of the, the 19th century revolutions. Um, we have, what else is it? I can't, oh, Jade is teaching human origins. So we're going to be looking at the evolution of humans, uh, uh, kind of biological anthropology kind of material. And there is one other class that is escaping my memory at the moment. But if you want to find out, you can uh, tweet at me. My handle is there. And uh, you can sign up on Patreon uh, for seven dollars a month to see everything that we're that we're up to. Yeah, and uh, just w- one one thing that I'm particularly excited for, which is going to be next year, is there's going to be a course on the history of damnation, uh, and looking at um, the words damnation and redemption in the context of theological conversations and how that's connected to economic reform or policy and things like that. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we're doing that are uh, very yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Damnation, and I'm I'm giving a, a, the class on sovereignty. So we're going to start with Plato's Statesman and consider um, the 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 political theological problem as the problem of the de, of the decision over the exception from from Plato to to Schmidt, Kantorovich, Bataille, 20th century thinkers like that. So uh, maybe maybe y'all should show up and read with us. I'd love to have you. <laughs> Well, great, Colin. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I am going to put all the stuff down there, as you said, and uh, that'll be a link to your Twitter and other resources. So maybe the next time that we have you back on, we can talk about the provocative tweet that you put out there, which said the reason that we should study Hegel and Kant is to understand the way that racism works. Yes. Um, but I don't think we should open that up. Otherwise, we're going to be here for another 40 yeah, we don't have, minutes. We don't have time, we okay. don't have time for that topic, but... Go 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 follow go follow Colin. Also, go read Atlas Horizon's book because you're not going to believe it. That's something I actually spend a lot of time arguing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, very good. The, the chapter three is partially just using Cedric Robinson to show the, the epistemological gesture of Hegel. But um, one final question: So, gathering everything we've actually done today, just quick, just really quick one: Do we mint a one trillion dollar coin? Do yeah, we do the funny. coin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be funny. I mean, fuck yes. I mean, okay, we should. We have but... the official coin line. You know, but nobody. It doesn't matter what I think. I mean, that's that's uh, is. It's, it's not going to happen. They're not going to do it because uh, because you know what? What it, it it would they they'd have to invent a whole new story about why they can't do it again and all that. You know, I mean, so yeah. So I say not even one. I mean, you should mint everybody a trillion dollar coin and pass them out on the street. I mean, just start throwing them out. Why not? <laughs> mint the coin. Mint the yeah. coin. Yeah, right. mint the- we appreciate your support of the imprint and the channel. Subscribe to Zero Books today on Patreon. Your material support helps us to promote a variety of perspectives on the left. Also, discover the many titles, new and old, that Zero has curated. Navigate to any of the links in the show notes to extend your support.